Hello, everyone, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Emily Hutchinson. And I'm your co-host, Laura Munoz. And we are here with Gavin Tolometti. Thank you so much for being here, Gavin. Yeah, it's great to be back. Thanks, you guys. Yes, welcome back. So can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, certainly. Uh, so I'm actually an old GradCast member, so I'm very familiar with what's happening right now. Uh, but my name is Gavin Tolometti. I was once a PhD candidate at Western University, now I'm a postdoctorate research fellow. And my focus is on lunar geology and exploration, uh, particularly looking at impact craters and lava flows on the surface of the moon. Uh, using a variety of data collected by spacecraft. That's so cool. And I was when I was reading a little bit about what you do, I was wondering, so do you need to to go there, take the samples, and then what do, like what do you actually measure when you are interested in these uh, samples from rocks all over the place? Uh, so yeah, so when it comes to the spacecraft data, a lot of what I can gather is what's publicly available online. Uh, the trick is trying to figure out how to work with some of the data because some is very user-friendly and others require a lot more uh, processing and understanding of how the data was collected. Uh, but for me, I particularly look at uh, visible images that are taken by high-resolution cameras and also radio radar data that's collected from uh, radio instruments that are on certain spacecrafts. For an example, it's, there is an instrument called the miniature radio frequency, which is on the lunar reconnaissance orbiter that is still orbiting the moon now. So what that can tell us is a lot of information about like the, almost like the physical properties of the surface of the moon. So it can tell us a lot about roughness, the types of uh, electrical properties of the regolith that's all over the surface. So it gives us a better idea of trying to find certain materials, certain elements, and helps identify areas that are safe for rovers and landers to eventually uh, land and explore. That's amazing. So you talk about a little bit about impact craters and, and lava. Is that the same as the lava that we have here that comes up from underneath the crust of the Earth, or is that something different on the moon? Uh, the concept is very similar, just how it erupts. It's um, It was at a much larger scale on the moon. It's um, why when you look at the moon, you see these dark patches that we call mare. So it just translates to sea of lava. So they these eruptions were a lot larger in scale and they spewed like thousands of kilometers, cu cubic, uh, cubic kilometers of lava onto the surface billions of years ago. I think the, some of the youngest is argued to be somewhere between two billion years and one billion years old. Uh, but compared to Earth, it's a much, as mentioned, lot, much larger scale. But what we don't see is a lot of tall volcano like cones that we see a lot on Earth. And a lot of that has to do with just the gravity differences. There's, there's less gravity on the moon, so you don't get as much building. So it's why we get these more flat uh, cone-like structures, or we get like these just giant fractures that we can see that are probably been buried in lava on the moon. And when it comes to impact craters, the moon is actually the perfect natural laboratory for geologists and planetary scientists because there's no active erosion besides other impact craters that form. So the majority of the time, they're very well preserved. So the crater looks like what do we expect the crater to look like. On Earth, we have the problem that we have uh, active water systems and hydraulical system. We have wind, we have tectonic plates, we have volcanism, and we have vegetation. It makes it very hard to study impact craters on Earth. So 
if we want to really understand how they form, the moon is the perfect place to try and understand this. The advantage of the Earth is that we could actually collect physical samples of rocks that form when a meteorite strikes the surface and form this impact crater, which is one. This was what we can't really do well on the moon because we're limited to what samples were brought back during the Apollo missions. So when, uh, so is the moon cold? Like inside the moon, there's no, there's nothing hot, is it? It is argued that it's pretty much almost dead inside the moon, that there's not much activity left. But so it's why it we don't. Be. It used to be, yes. When it first formed, it was like very active and was able to produce all this volcanic activity. Uh, but now, since it's not been active for mil hundreds of millions of years, it is said that the core is probably stopped spinning and there's not really any heat left inside to create any more uh, volcanic activity. Ah, okay. So that's why there haven't been volcanic eruptions in billions of years. These are all like historic ones from the past. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I have the question, how did the moon form? What how did it get there? I don't think I've ever wondered that before. Can you walk us through how the moon came to be? Uh, well, there are a few hypotheses that are always argued to, still to this day of how the moon probably formed. The most accepted one by a majority of planetary scientists is there was a Mars-sized planetary body called uh, Thesia that, Therisa, that crashed into Earth when it was forming about 4.56 billion years ago. And it ripped out a chunk of the Earth and then created it and then started to form a sphere-like structure that we would call the moon and started to orbit around what we call early Earth when it was still very hot, active, and very chaotic. Another arg argument for how the moon formed was that when the Earth was spinning rapidly when it was forming, a little chunk just flung off and then that's what formed the moon and it just came off, but there was no impact collision. And another argument is just that the moon was formed through accretionary process at the same time that the Earth was being formed. And the reason the impact hypothesis is accepted the most is that we would look at data known as isotopic data. So we look at different elements that with different numbers of protons and neutrons. And what we could see is that some of the material on the moon is similar to what is on Earth, but there are some differences. So we know it didn't come directly just from the Earth because we expect them to be exactly the same. But we, so that's why it's hypothesized that it had to have been, the Earth had to have been impacted by something that's different to show these differences. But it's definitely the moon didn't come from a far away and was taken, and the moon didn't come from a distant location somewhere else in the solar system was captured because we see the similarities, some similarities between the Earth and the moon. So it's why they say some of it came from Earth, but something else had to have come into the system and impact the earth. And it's why we see these subtle differences. That's so interesting. And are those uh, like conclusions only based on the minerals, comparing minerals of both, or you only you also take into account, for example, the spin of the moon or the velocity or the location to know where it came from. Like the fact that it's located in this specific part and it's like spinning this way or other, that, does that also give you an idea? That tells us a little bit just more about how the moon is orbiting the Earth. It doesn't really tell us a lot about where it came from. It's we mainly get all of the information from the minerals that we collect from the moon and then compare it to some on Earth that the oldest ones that we can find. Uh, it's usually that type of data that can tell us more about where the moon came from and where what does it share? It's a, what's it similar to? Is it similar to Earth or is it more similar to other planetary bodies? 
And where on earth do you look for old minerals? You would have to go to specific places that we would call cratons. So they're chunks of crust that formed more than 2 billion years ago, as even further closer to the time when the earth was formed, that have never been recycled by tectonic plates or destroyed by uh, volcanism or impact cratering. They're still intact. So you'd have to go to the locations on earth and Canada is actually got one of the largest cratons in the world. And one of the other locations, there's some in South America, but also Australia is uh, partly comprised of a craton as well. So that's where, that's why if you ever look at geologic papers and a lot of them look at some of the oldest material, you are, you'll notice that some of the samples are either from Canada or they're from Australia. That's amazing. Have you ever been to these places and seen them for yourself? What do they, what would they look like? I personally have not been to these places, but a lot of them, if you do get the chance to see them, they would look like these very coarse grained, what do you mean by like these rocks that have huge chunk crystals in them. They could range from being white, transparent, or sometimes black and pink. And these are just like large, magmatic, igneous, plutonic rocks that were emplaced up to the surface to form the crust over 2 billion years ago. And you get some that have been modified by many geologic processes throughout the geologic timescale. We would call these metamorphosed rocks. So mm -hmm. they look different, but they, what their chemistry hasn't really changed. And some of these can range from ones that look like bands, almost look like curvy little layers. We would call these types of rocks like nice. And it's, it sounds like we're saying nice, but it's spelled completely different. But if you were to type in this in on Google, which is it's spelled G-N-E-I-S-S, you'll see like these banding like structures and almost looks like minerals have been stretched into these bands. So that's how you know it's been metamorphosed. And that's usually what a lot of these craton rocks would look like. If you really wanna see good ones, I know some members of the lab I'm a part of at Western go to the Canadian high Arctic to actually find them because they're trying to understand more about how these rocks formed and how they were preserved and still able to preserve certain minerals for over billions of years. And how are they different from more recent rocks? Like what's the main difference or can, can you just tell by seeing two different rocks, this is older and this is a younger rock? Um, sometimes you actually can't. It really depends on how well preserved they are. If they've been protected from water, wind, other chemicals, or even volcanism tectonics, they can look almost exactly like another rock that's very young geologically speaking, what we'd consider young could be tens of millions of years, and what we consider old to be in the hundreds of millions to billions of years. But they could look exactly the same. And sometimes until you look at the isotope uh, data, which could tell us the age when these rocks were formed, you won't really know for sure, unless you have a really good idea of the geologic history of the area that you're in. Sometimes unless you take it to a lab and run some analysis on it, you're not really going to be able to tell. That's awesome. So you didn't go to these sites of really ancient rocks, but what kind of field work did you do if you did any? Did you go explore and collect rocks and analyze them in the lab, like you're saying? Yeah, so actually this at the end of this coming summer, now that we were able to travel within Canada uh, with some COVID restrictions lifted, we were able to go to a field site called the Mistaston Lake Impact Structure, which is located in Labrador. So it's about, to get some sort of context of where it is on the map, it's about 350 kilometers north of Goose Bay and about 80-ish kilometers west of the East Coast. 
So we are pretty isolated away from a lot of civilization. We did some have some of the indigenous communities that were in the area that which were local. So it was quite interesting to learn about the cultural uh, heritage of the impact crater and some of the structures that were in there. But what we were doing there is that we were trying to understand how this melt that we call impact melt, how it was formed when a meteorite struck the surface of the planetary body and how it cooled. We we're trying to understand like its thermal evolution of this melt, which can be applied especially to lunar geology because we've seen preserved impact melt through a lot of this uh, remote sensing data that I've looked at through spacecraft uh, that spacecrafts have collected the past um, decade. And the types of rocks that we collected could range from these very glassy type material, which almost looks like if you were to quickly chill something very hot and it turns into very glassy material, like obsidian. Obsidian is a very good reference a lot of people know of. So we had some material that looked like obsidian, but actually wasn't obsidian. And this coarser grained rock, so you could definitely see the little crystals inside, which is the impact melt that cooled a lot slower than the glassy material. And what we're hoping to do with these is to take them into the lab and look at the mineral makeup, the composition. We're trying to look for these specific minerals that we call zircons that could tell us a lot about the temperature conditions and even the pressure conditions of the impact event itself, which can help us tell a lot about how these impact craters actually are formed, modified, which could then apply to lunar impact craters, so ones that we think would be similar to the one that we studied on Earth. So when you analyze them, have you ever discovered a mineral that you're like, this is crazy or like this is unexpected for Earth or like new? I don't know, um, because I, I, I wonder if these impacts come from, of course, like outer space and maybe some completely different uh, <laughs> forms or of, I don't know, minerals and <laughs> elements could be there. I don't know much about this, but I'm just wondering if you have ever encountered something that it's like very, like, I don't know, weird for you to see in these samples. I wouldn't say weird, but one mineral that we did find that we did, that is only, can only form in impact creating events. It's called um, redite, just spelled R-E-I-D-I-T-E. And what this is, this is a polymorph form of that zircon mineral that I mentioned. So we call it, it's the high pressure version of what zircon would become if it's when it gets struck by a meteorite. And the reason this mineral is so unique and it's used to prove that an area that you're in right now formed from an impact event is because it requires more than 30 gigapascals worth of pressure to form, which the only location on earth where you're gonna be able to find pressures close to that is the center is within our core. So that's how you know that there's no other process that could have formed this mineral except from a meteorite impact because they strike the surface at hypervelocities, which is far faster than the escape velocity of the planet. And this minerals, it's hard to see. You can't really look at a rock and see it. It's very microscopic. You have to look it through not even microscopes. You have to use electron beams to be able to scatter electrons off these minerals. And they give you a certain image, a certain signal that tells you it's a redite mineral. And that's the minerals that are most unique to find at these um, impact impact sites. That's really cool. So you said they look different on like a microscopic level. So would you, if like you, someone saw a meteorite fall and hit the earth and they went to go look for it, what are the odds they would actually find it in the field or wherever it landed? The odds of you knowing for sure you found it in the field are 
next to none oh. unless you again had a very extensive knowledge of the area you were looking into and you knew exactly roughly where to find it because if you when an impact crater forms you get an idea of where the highest pressure would have occurred in the event so you know roughly that it, if you're going to find it it would be in a sample within this radius mm -hmm. if you knew the the magnitude of the impact event the size of the impact or its speed which sometimes a lot of that's um, guesstimated from uh, equations and mathematical modeling. But right. you could maybe hope what the sample you pick up has that mineral in, but unfortunately you're not gonna know until you take it back to the lab, cut it, polished it, uh, put it under an electron beam and try to find that mineral. So it's, it's probably the hardest, almost near impossible to see it in the field. Yes. At least as far as I'm aware, I've not seen a paper where someone's pointed at a hand sample and said like that's a piece of redite right there because it's extremely difficult to see. So uh, uh, now from a more biological point of view I'm wondering if if you see that like like no I'm going to rephrase that um, coming from a more biological point of view I'm wondering if once you go to those craters I guess they have like very particular properties like they are entire formations that are like special, I guess. Are they like holes? And I, I'm wondering, since you see some of these uh, rare minerals, do you see like any forms of life that are more unique of those places or no? Uh, so I can definitely answer the first part about features that are unique. Um, for some impact craters, especially the very old ones, uh, two in particular, there's the Red Vault impact structure in South Africa and the Sudbury impact basin that is based in Sudbury, Ontario. They've actually been, they form just about 2 billion. I think Subaru was about 1.85 billion years ago. They've been buried, modified, and eroded so much that it doesn't look like an impact structure anymore. The only reason it was eventually discovered to be an impact structure is when they found these specific minerals that could only form from an impact event. And you, get, you do get some that actually look like a bowl that's in the ground. Uh, most, one of the most famous and popular ones to look into is the Meteor Crater, which is based in Arizona. It's formed from a iron-based meteorite. They actually still have a piece of it that was preserved in the Vista Center that's there. It's actually very cool. If anyone ever gets a chance to travel again to Arizona, I definitely recommend checking it out. It's a very small impact structure there. It's like 1.2 kilometers in diameter. But the amount of energy that it took to produce that crater was more than, I think it was a few tons of TNT. So that just gives you a reference of just how much energy is produced. And that's for a small event, like 1.2 kilometers, that's a very tiny crater. The Sudbury Basin goes up to about close to 300 kilometers, I believe. Wow. So that would have been global, global catastrophic changing with that event. And then you have the, the Chicxulub crater, which was allegedly what wiped out the dinosaurs, that was enough to wipe out 95% of the land population. So you could imagine what a crater even bigger than that would be able to do to the entire planet. To, answer, to try, I can't really answer your second question very well because it's not a field that I'm very knowledgeable in, but I know other members of my lab, they are looking to try and find evidence of biological, primarily microbial activity that did occur after these impact events uh, were completed because the amount of energy and leftover energy from these impact events, once it cools to a temperature that doesn't kill anything that's living, it creates these systems we would call hydrothermal systems. If fluids suddenly moved into the crater and got hot and brought in these rich chemicals, there is some arguments that microbial life could have actually 
started on Earth because of impact craters. Something we consider to be destructive could have actually been the spark that initiated life on Earth. There's still a lot of debate because it is still considered a destructive process, but there are, is evidence that it could actually have cultivated life. And they're actually trying to apply that to Mars, to the impact craters on Mars, because if there was once water on Mars, could, this, could these systems have actually also occurred there, similar to what we can see on Earth? So that's as much as I could say for that question, but I don't want to say anything that could actually be counterintuitive or completely incorrect. So you said that impact craters and the result of things hitting the earth is very destructive. So I'm just picturing like a humongous rock hitting the earth. And then what would happen after that? What causes it to like extinguish the dinosaurs? What, what happens to the earth when something hits it? Well, basing it off the one that wiped out the dinosaurs, it, everyone thinks it was just the impact itself. Like the initial energy release was what wiped them out. That would only have been close range. Anything within probably 100 kilometers of that crater, yes, it would have been from ejected of material and just heat that was released would have killed anything in its path. Globally, it's because of the sheer magnitude, the amount of material it ejected into the atmosphere, like a giant plume, would have started to cause global forest fires nearby because of the amount of material that was released. After that, soon, since it was hit, did hit an ocean area, tsunamis would have been formed by that event, probably taken out a lot of coastal regions. But also since it put a lot of material in the atmosphere, it would have probably caused a global cooling event which would have dramatically reduced the global temperature, which even a couple degrees is enough to wipe out entire species. Wow. So, and being reptilian, once you cool something down too much, it's not a um, pleasant environment. So there was so many contributing factors. The meteorite impact was just what initiated all of them. And how many of these things can you learn by looking at, this, at the rocks, like by looking at the samples and analyzing the data? Well, it really depends on the one you pick up. Uh, you can definitely tell a lot about, if you pick up impact melt in particular, you can learn about, as well, I'm trying to look at, look a bit, look into more as the thermal evolution of these impact cratering events. You could also use impact melt to date when that impact event occurred, because if you know when the impact melt formed, you know exactly when the crater formed. You do run the risk if you look at like the surrounding basement rocks or the surface rocks, which we would call target rocks have been modified by the impact event you may actually date something that's probably was a geologic event that happened before the event. So you could misdate it. And other materials, you could also look at, there's one type of impactite, which, which I haven't mentioned yet. It's called what we call a tectite, which is T-E-K-T-I-T-E. These are tiny little glass like globules that get flung either tens of kilometers from the crater or thousands of kilometers from a crater. And what this actually provides us is a lot of information about how far some material can be flung from an impact event, which does help us try to one, identify uh, maybe missing impact events that we haven't discovered, or it can't, eh, not even or, and it can actually help us understand how ejector was probably like lifted up from the ground and flung across the surface of the moon because it could help us narrow down what type of material probably came from what crater, which is useful because in the Apollo pro during the Apollo program, when they picked up certain rock types, we don't really know exactly where they all came from. So trying to understand how those materials ejected from craters can, can kind of help us narrow down where they originated. But if, in all honesty, if you really want to know where it came from, you have to go exactly to the location, which is easier than said than done, though. 
So Gavin, you have just finished your PhD this summer. Congratulations. That must be a great feeling. Can you tell us about what your life is like now? Like, what is it like beyond the degree? And what are, what are you studying to continue this, this research? Funny enough, uh, when you do a master's and a PhD, that you always get told when you leave undergrad that prepare to be very independent because you no longer can go to your profs 24-7 to ask for help when it comes to classes and labs. When, it, when you become a postdoc, you have to then up that even more because you are technically officially an independent researcher and they really do mean independent researcher because even as a graduate grad student, you would still go to your supervisor for certain assistance and you mm -hmm. could still go to them mm -hmm. for funding questions and how you do certain things. You're not really supposed to do that now as a postdoc because you have to show that you can do all of this with as little intervention as possible. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm just saying that when you, if you think you're trying to be as in, you're independent now as a PhD or a master's student, prepare yourself that if you do take a postdoc, you have to be even more independent, that you have to actively look for funding sources. You have to actively think of research projects sometimes from scratch without, as, without either motivation or inspiration or even suggestions from the people. Sometimes you have to go back to the basics, get a whiteboard and start brainstorming ideas of things that are possible. And if you can actually produce concrete results from it. So weirdly, it's great because I've been able to work on some other projects I've had in the back of my mind as a PhD student. I'm looking more into studying some of the permanent shadow regions in the lunar poles, which are very useful for trying to find volatile material and water ice for future lunar missions. I'm also looking into studying more about the thermal evolution of impact craters. So I am continuing that research, just looking at more samples at a larger scale. And I'm actually being trying to get more proficient with different instruments that could help us with terrestrial field work. I'm actually starting to learn how to fly drones more efficiently and to create maps using these drones. So it's a, you get some more opportunities to try brand new things which you get to do as a PhD student and a master's student. But again, you have even more freedom to pick. If you want to do this and you can show you can do it, do it. You don't always need to look for the approval. As long as it doesn't impact your main contract as a postdoc, it's pretty much a free game. The downside is it is because it's a free game that makes it harder because there's a lot more pressure because now you, have, you, you may have your own schedule, but you still have to try and stay ahead of the game and be prepared for the next opportunity. It's not like you, something you can just fall back on if, if something doesn't work out. You have to be ready to move on to the next thing once if something's about to either unfortunately come to an end or perhaps you want to take a different direction. So that's the scariest thing I'd say I found since defending, but also the most exciting thing. So it's a like a yin-yang effect almost. I feel like this is a very important advice. Um, mm -hmm. For me, for example, that I'm about like, I'm kind of finishing my PhD. I'm wondering if before you finish your PhD, you already knew that you were going for a postdoc and you started looking for positions or how did that process go for you from finishing your PhD to getting a postdoc <laughs> and now probably starting to think about your next step, probably like affiliating to some kind of institution or something like that? Yes, I actually, well, I was highly recommended by both my supervisors. The, the final year of your PhD, before you go into your final year, your PhD, you should start looking for your postdoc if you want to get a postdoc, because some applications can take up to nine months, even longer. 
especially if it's a, a large uh, funding proposal, could take to be processed, reviewed, and then a decision to be released. Sometimes you also have to send, I've lost count of how many emails I've sent off to professors from other institutions looking for opportunities, scholarships, fellowships, trying to stay one step ahead to make sure I have something to work on and there's funding available to work on these projects in the future. So I would say the best piece of advice I could give to PhD students who are close to finishing or about to enter their final year is that you need to actively look if you're in that position now. Talk to your supervisor. They can always help you point you in the right direction. There's a lot of, I even funny enough, I actually got some help using LinkedIn of all places to try and find some people, especially when you can look for uh, regions of interests and like uh, very similar research styles, or maybe sometimes you want to try something new when you see that someone's working on this thing you want to try, you can contact them. So I actually used a combination of LinkedIn and just sending so many emails to people I knew that were in similar lines of work that I was in, that, or work that I wanted to get into. It, it's all about taking initiative, really, and that's really the best piece of advice I could give. That's amazing. So we're just about out of time. So thank you so much for coming on, Gavin. It was great to learn all these things about impact craters and space rocks. I, I learned a lot, and especially for your advice for PhD finishing and postdocs. If anyone wants to learn more about your research and what you do, do you have any social media or a website they can look up to see more about you? Yes, uh, I have a Twitter and an Instagram handle. It's at Gavin on the moon. It's the no spaces and it's the same for both Twitter and Instagram. I've also got a website. If you type in Gal Gavin Tolomedi uh, researcher, you would see it on a Wix account. I can probably provide you guys with the uh, link to that website. And if you're also interested in learning a bit more about some um, space exploration and science communication, it's like a little bit of a different turn. I actually have a podcast that's called the Diaries of Space Explorers, which is available on Podbean and Spotify. I currently have only season one out and I'm trying to work on getting a new season coming out sometime in 2022. Sounds great. I love your Twitter handle. That's, that's amazing. So thank you. This has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Emily Hutchinson, and my co-host was Laura Munoz-Bina, and we've been speaking with Gavin Tolometti. And this episode was also produced by Laura. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at, at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we're on Radio Western 94.9 FM, and you can also find all of our episodes wherever you find your podcast. Thank you for listening and have a great night.